You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. I'm Molly Bloom, and we want to revel in the newness of this new year by talking about some newer news about something very old. We're talking about dinosaurs. That's Kate Wexler. If you've been listening to Brains On for a while, you might remember her as the co-host of our episode about extinction. That was a long time ago. Not as long ago as dinosaurs, but yeah, it was one of our very first episodes. It's also a personal favorite, so if you haven't heard it, go check it out. Thanks for being here, Kate. Oh yeah, of course. I love it. (laughs) So time has passed and you're now officially taller than me, but you're also still interested in dinosaurs. Yes, I really want to know more about dinosaurs. And since you follow the latest dino and fossil news, we asked you to come back to help us with an interview about a very exciting recent discovery. A baby dino tail trapped in amber, complete with feathers. That's right. An actual dinosaur tail with feathers preserved in amber. There's a picture of it on our website, brainson.org. It is super cool. A Chinese paleontologist named Lida Zing found this amazing piece of amber at a market in Myanmar. Amber expert Ryan McKellar worked with Lita to study the dinosaur tail. Ryan is the curator of invertebrate paleontology at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum in Canada. How do we know if it's a dinosaur tail, and how old is it? This particular amber deposit, uh, or Burmese amber, is 99 million years old, and they've been able to date that based on both the fossils that are found in the surrounding rocks and more recently, um, some of the grains of sediment that are stuck to the outside of the amber. How we know that we're dealing with a dinosaur tail in this case and not a bird tail, uh, because they both existed at the same time. With the dinosaur tails, um, the vertebrae or the individual bones haven't fused together to form a solid rod, whereas bird tails have something called a pygostyle. It's a series of fused vertebrae that support the tail feathers. And in this specimen, we're not seeing the pygostyle or the fused vertebrae. So why is this a big deal? Well, this is a big deal because it's the first time that we found dinosaur bones in amber. Here we get to see everything preserved in 3D and down to the finest level of detail. So we can see things like the barbules or the, the finest structures on feathers and how they're arranged relative to each other, how the feathers attach to the body, how the skin is uh, on the outside of the body, how the feathers insert into the skin. Things that we just don't get to see in other fossils. Wow, that, that it amazes me that, that this can happen, that we are finding these. Um, what is amber? Amber is fossilized tree resin. So if you've ever climbed a pine or spruce, spruce tree or uh, cut one of them, it's a defense product that trees release to keep things like insects and fungi and bacteria from invading them. So what is um, the piece of dinosaur tail? Do you know, is there a name for the species? Uh, it belongs to a broad group of dinosaurs but because we only have a small section of the tail. We can't say exactly which species or which genus it belonged to. Uh, we can say it belonged to a group called the Silurosaurs, which is a very broad group of dinosaurs that spans everything from Tyrannosaurs all the way up to modern birds. So we know we're somewhere near the, the bottom of that group. Something that's a little bit more similar in terms of body shape and things like that to dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor than it is to modern birds. So when the dinosaur was alive, what could the possible feathers look like? Well, they would have been, if you're familiar with robins or most songbirds, they have body feathers that are covering things like the chest and above the tail feathers. Um, those are called contour feathers. And the structure that we're seeing in the amber specimen, or the, the feather structure, is very similar to those, except it's a little bit more fuzzy. So you can almost picture petting this animal. It would have been sort of soft and fuzzy, um, a little bit um, more fuzzy than sleek, for lack of a better description. 
and uh, sort of chocolate brown or chestnut brown top surface of the tail and a pale or white undersurface of the tail and the tail feathers coming off in ridges on the sides of the tail as opposed to being a, a nice smooth coat all the way down the tail. Cool. Um, so what are the possible uses for having the feathers? Well, um, it gives a couple of different options. They, Because these feathers are sort of fuzzy and floppy, for lack of a better description, they probably wouldn't have been much use for flight. And if the entire tail was covered in this sort of feather coat, it's very unlikely the animal would have been capable of flight or powered flight. Um, so we're looking at a situation where it's probably used for things like insulation or maybe camouflage or that weird contrasting pattern that we're seeing between the dark top surface and the pale undersurface of the tail might have been used for things like visual signaling, like in modern birds where they flash their tails or um, things like deer do it too, to signal predators or to scare off predators, uh, that sort of stuff. Kate, have you seen the movie Jurassic Park? Yes, many over and over and over. <laughs> it's a fun movie. How does that movie relate to this interview? In the beginning of the movie, they found a piece of amber with a mosquito with blood in it. And that's how they found uh, dinosaur DNA. And this uh, really reminded me of it because it's an actual dinosaur tail with feathers and all. And it could kind of remind me, it's like, can we actually make those dinosaurs? <laughs> right. So we had to ask the question to Ryan. Do we have a Jurassic Park scenario on our hands? With this, it's a resounding no, unfortunately. Um, so the tail is neat because it has soft tissue preservation of some form. Um, but we get to see just how degraded the material is. Um, the skin and things like that and muscle tissue are only really left behind as a thin film of carbon. So it, it's not much more wet or interesting than pencil lead or coal, for lack of a better description. It's not the sort of material you can get DNA out of. Um, we may not be able to bring it back to life, but we get a pretty good detailed view of what it would have looked like. So it won't be hatching in a lab anytime soon? No, unfortunately. It's, I'm usually the party pooper. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. no dinosaur clones. But even though it's been millions of years since dinosaurs walked the earth, there are still new discoveries happening all the time. And these discoveries lead to new questions and mysteries to be solved. Speaking of mysteries, it's time for the mystery sound. Mystery sound. Here it is. Despite our previous conversation, it's not a dinosaur. This mystery sound was sent to us from a brains-on listener from Georgetown, Texas. So, Kate, do you have any thoughts on what that might be? Um, a little bit. It sounds like that somebody's eating, and it sounds like they're walking in thick plants. <laughs> okay, so we know there's an eating sound and some walking in plants. That's an excellent guess. We'll be back with the answer right after this. We're currently working on an episode all about ants, and we want to know this. 
what would you do if you were the size of an ant? Where would you go? What would the world look like? Send your answer by email to brainson at m as in Minnesota, pr.org. We'll include some of the answers in our episode. You can, of course, also send us your questions, mystery sounds, and drawings anytime to that same email address. We love hearing from our listeners, and in order to say thanks, we started the Brains Honor Roll to give shout-outs to all the amazing kids who keep the show going with their energy and ideas. If you've written to us, we will get to you, we promise. But we're hearing from so many of you that there's a bit of a wait. So thank you for your patience. Charlotte and Lucas from DeWitt, Michigan. Jonathan from Taipei, Taiwan. Matthew from Scapoos, Oregon. Grace, Noah, and Audrey from Oak Park, Illinois. Blake, Brooklyn, and Alana from Chennai, India. Jenna from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Katie and Nikki from British Columbia. Sam and Dylan from Encinitas, California. Maya from Santa Monica. Lillian from Arcata, California. Taylor from Nipomo, California. Eric, Elise, Kiki, and Clark from Sarasota. Calvin and Eric from Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Grace from Vacaville, California. Emily from San Diego. Marley and Sammy from Denver. Sophia and Maya from Nashville. Brady from Brooklyn. Annika from Ridgefield, Washington, Krista from Middleton, Wisconsin, Julian and Louie from Columbus, Ohio, Dylan and Claire from San Diego, Jack from Columbia, South Carolina, Layla from Adelaide, Australia, Dylan from Tallahassee, Charlie from Brookhaven, Georgia, Vibe from Singapore, and Declan from Seattle. Let's go back to that mystery sound. Let's hear it one more time. Still the same guess? Yeah. All right. It, well, it kind of for some reason sounded like running water in oh, like one point. I don't know. Like in the very beginning. <laughs> Here's the answer from Beatrix. The sound you just heard is the sound of Lulu the horse eating hay. I hope take care of Lulu by feeding her grain and hay. I also groom and muck the stalls. I have been riding horses for two years. Lulu is a sweet and gentle pony. Oh. <laughs> you were close. You got the eating wow. part. You got the eating. And you heard like the, you know, the hay kind of has like a plant-like sound. Yeah. So it, you were close. It reminded me of like carrots for some reason. Yeah. Like so. that sound of carrots. And I did have a picture of a horse in my head, but. <laughs> See, you were you were right on. The first ancestors of modern horses called Hyracotherium or Eohippus lived in North American forests about 55 million years ago and were closer to the size of dogs than the horses we know today. The piece of amber studied by Ryan McKellar that we talked about earlier is about 99 million years old. And that puts us smack dab in the Cretaceous period, a very, 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 very long time ago. And that got us thinking about this question. My name is Jonathan. And my name is Ellison from Oak Park, Illinois. And our question is, how do paleontologists know how old dinosaur bones are? To figure out how scientists know how old dinosaur bones are, we're going to visit a bakery. A bakery? Is that right? Okay. Hello, Brains On listeners. You ready to get righteous? I'm celebrity cake chef Griff Jenkins. You might have seen me on my many shows like Cake Attack or Extreme Frosting or our first show, Tea and Crumpets with Griffin. 
Shut up, Benny. I don't talk about that anymore. And it's Griff now. Uh, sorry, Griffin. Uh, I mean, Griff. My bad. That's my assistant, Benny. Don't mind him. Now, I'm going to show you how scientists figure out the age of a fossil using a five-layer ice cream cake! I've got the cake right here. Cut in half just like you asked, Griffin. I mean, I mean, Griff, look at all those layers. It's so pretty. Extremely pretty! So why do we have an ice cream cake to talk about dinosaur bones? Great question, Griff. Well, dinosaur bones are found deep in the earth, and the earth is kind of like a layer cake. If you cut the earth in half, which would be extreme, then you'd see lots of different layers of dirt and cooled hardened lava and other stuff. We call these layers strata. Like your cake right here. Exactly, my friend. So let's look at this cake a little closer. We got five layers. On the bottom there's cake, then a layer of ice cream. Then a middle layer of cake, then another layer of ice cream. Finally, the top layer of cake. What a beast this dessert is. So the layers are cake, ice cream, cake, ice cream, cake. Got it. Now, Benny, in this cake, which layer do you think is the oldest? If I would have to venture a guess like you're asking me to, I would have to say the one on the bottom of the cake. I'm, I mean, you had to put that one down first, so... Bingo! You nailed it, bro! In the Earth, it's the same way. Generally, the deepest layers are the oldest. Over time, new layers are added on top of those by rivers, erosion, or some such thing. And they cover the older layers. So you can assume the deeper layers are older than the ones near the surface. Griff, that actually makes sense. Now, I've hidden cookie crumbles in each layer. You did? Griff, I love cookie crumbles. <laughs> I know, pal. That's why I put them there. Righteous friendship! So... Let's say you find cookie crumbs in the bottom layer of the cake and the middle layer. Which crumbs were sprinkled first? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I'd say the ones lower down on the bottom layer of the cake were laid down before the ones on the middle layer of the cake, since that layer was added after the bottom layer. Bada boom! You nailed it, Benny! <laughs> it's the same with bones found in the earth. Scientists know bones found higher up in the earth are probably younger than those found deeper in the earth. This method of figuring out the age of bones is called relative dating. My mom told me I'm not supposed to date relatives, even though I have lots of cousins. Danny, jeez. That's not what I meant. It's called relative dating because you can say one set of bones is older or younger relative to another set of bones. Oh, yeah. That's what I meant, too. Yeah. The problem with relative dating is you can't say how old the bones are. Just that they're older or younger than something else. But sometime in the last century, scientists came up with another way of figuring out the age of bones. How's that? They discovered a lot of these sedimentary layers have small, harmless amounts of radioactive elements. These radioactive bits, they break down over time at a specific rate. So if you find some of these radioactive elements, you can see how broken down they are and determine how long ago they formed. I gotta be straight with you. I don't get it. <laughs> One step ahead of you, Benny. Remember our cake has two layers of ice cream? Yeah. It goes cake, ice cream, cake, ice cream, cake. Yep, nailed it. All right, what happens to ice cream the longer you leave it out? Uh, it melts. Ah, double nailed it. Now, <laughs> that ice cream melts at a steady rate. If we wanted to, we could analyze how much of that ice cream is already melted and work backwards from there to figure out how long it's been sitting out. Right. Obviously, the bottom ice cream layer, which was put on first, has been sitting out longer. Therefore... That bottom layer should be more melted than the higher layer of ice cream, which was added later on. So we can tell how old the ice cream layers are in this way. You, my friend, are totally getting it. That's similar to how these radioactive bits in the layers of dirt break down. It's like the ice cream melting. And 
By studying how broken the bits are, scientists can determine how long ago that layer formed. But here's the catch. Not all layers have the right kind of radioactive elements to do this sort of study. Some layers have already broken down so you can't tell if they were deposited a million years ago or yesterday. That's like the cake. The cake layers that are in ice cream won't melt. So how do we know how old they are? Here's where the magic happens. Scientists can look for the layers of sediment that do have these long-lasting radioactive elements like hardened lava. They can come up with an edge for those. Then they can figure out the age of things in between them. So if one layer deep down is 60 million years old and another layer higher up is 50 million years old, anything in the middle must be between 60 and 50 million years old. Just like the bottom layer of the ice cream was put on the cake three minutes ago and the upper layer of the ice cream was put on one minute ago. Anything in the layer of cake between them must have been added between three and one minute ago. Benny, my man, you are exploding with the inside. <laughs> this kind of fossil study is called radiometric dating because it looks at radioactive materials. And that, my man, is how scientists figure out the age of bones right now. Speaking of right now, that alarm means it's time for tea, Griffin. I mean, Griff. <laughs> tea. <laughs> it's probably my alarm for spiking my hair. Riding my motorcycle. No, it says right here in the Daily Planet. That's 2 o'clock. It's time for tea and scones. Dude, just set out the plates and stop talking about it. You want honey and lemon in your tea? Of course I want honey and lemon. That's it for this righteous science lesson, my compadres. I'm Griff Jenkins. See you around. Woo! The kettle is on! Do we have Earl Grey? Of course. I've set out the china cups. Are they the ones with the ivy drawings on them? Bro, I love those cups. Yeah, so pretty. I hope that tea is hot. That's our show. Brains On is produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandin Taunton, and Molly Bloom. Special thanks this week to Corey Shreppel, Shannon Custer, Chris Wexler, Joshua Bond, and John Miller. You can keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter. We're Brains underscore on. And we're on Facebook, too. If you're a fan of Brains On, it would mean a lot to us if you would consider leaving a review of the show on iTunes. It really helps other kids and parents to find out about the show. And you can email your questions, mystery sounds, and thoughts about dinosaurs to brainson at m as in Minnesota, pr.org. Thank you for listening.